Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, and scientists about how to write music. In this episode, you'll get to hear from Rishikesh Herway, who produces the hit podcast Song Exploder. But first, a few announcements. This season was brought to you by the wonderful patrons of Composer Quest and our sponsor, lynda.com. Linda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com quest. And that's L-Y-N-D-A. Maybe you want to learn about how to start your own podcast. Mid-episode, I'll play a little sample of a podcast production course from Linda that could help you out. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. I want to thank my patron Chris Kukla, who also appeared on the show in episode 68. Check his music out at chriskukla.com. He does some awesome video game scores. And Kukla is spelled K-U-K-L-A. Also, shout out to Dan Noflicek. I met him here in the Twin Cities at our Film Score Fest last year. We are doing that again, by the way. Check it out at composerquest.com quest15 if you want to be a part of it. Anyways, Dan makes some electronic music too. Check it out at soundcloud.com slash macro-1. Next, a jingle for my $3 per episode contributor, Elaine Klopke. Elaine lives in Green Bay, Wisconsin, my neighbor in the land of cheese. I could make a joke about Wisconsin, but you know it's 2015. And jokes about the state you live in are so 2002 And Elaine is a nice person who deserves a better tune So Elaine Klopke, I'm singing to you I hope you have a good day Making music and sculpting away It's the Elaine Klopke One last announcement. We're in the final hours of our Patchwork Scriabin quest. Over 50 listeners have been recording individual measures of an Alexander Scriabin piano prelude using a variety of instruments. I'm going to be stitching our audio quilt together late tonight, and based on the snippets I've heard, I'm getting really excited to reveal it to the world. So check back on Sunday for this special episode in honor of the 100th anniversary of Scriabin's death. If you haven't heard of Song Exploder yet, it's a great podcast that digs deep into the mixes of tons of famous songs from artists like The Postal Service, Spoon, and Alexandra Desplat. In this episode, Rishikesh Herway and I talk about his approach to podcasting, and we also get to hear about his own approach to songwriting. There's a world without you Yeah, there's a world without you He mentions a bunch of his favorite songs throughout the episode, and I have links to all of them in the show notes at composerquest.com slash songexploder. Stick around till the end of the episode to hear a new edition of Charlie's Music Production Lessons, which is kind of like my mini version of Song Exploder. Now let's get on to my talk with Risha Kesh. Thanks for being on Composer Quest here. Thanks for having me. I... I have to apologize. I said I would send you a list of potential questions, um, but we'll just have them all be surprises. 
Sounds for good. you. I, I can deal with uh, that. Do you do what do you do with Song Exploder? Do you prepare people beforehand? No. Much? No, I, I want to get spontaneous sounding answers as much as possible. I want it to feel like there's a sense of discovery for them too. Do you ever find that people I guess if it's like not a recent song in their memory that they discover new things that they forgot about or yes it's it's actually one of my favorite parts of the show is sort of accompanying people when they're taking this trip down memory lane as as they go back and they hear things you know they might have heard since making it they might have heard the the full thing but when you get them to like open up the session and, and look inside a lot of times things will be hazy for them but over the course of talking about it in, in the conversation they might say oh right yeah and then that happened they'll kind of rediscover something that happened in the process or they'll hear a stem and they'll remember making it or, or whatever the story was behind it that they they might have forgotten it's it's definitely my favorite part and i i think if i can get it right if i can capture it correctly it, it can be really fun for listeners too oh wow I don't think I heard that. I've heard that before, and this is awful. But I don't even know the name of the guy who played it because it was at Paul Green's studio house. This house is so cool. It's like basically kids, college age, are just like living in this house, like sleeping. Like we would be recording, and there'd be like a kid over there, like asleep on the couch. Am I really gonna crank up this half stack? The kid's head is over there. Do you notice a difference between, like, say, a traditional composer like Jeff Beale versus a songwriter? Like, in how they work um, and think about these stems? I think for the episodes that I've done, there is a bit of a difference. But I think that's more a product of what the actual music is. You know, with, with the Jeff Beale episode and the Alexandre Desplat episode those guys are writing for picture so it's an original composition but it's always going to be informed by these other forces you know even with with jeff beale he had he started writing stuff for house of cards before they shot a scene in in fact they were using his music while they were shooting it but he was still informed by conversations he had with david fincher and things that bo willman had written and with Alexander Desplat, you know, he's writing to picture versus when you're talking to a musician and they're talking about a song that was born completely from them, you know, that there was nothing before and then they've came up with the idea and executed it. There's a sense of ownership that you can have that I don't think a, a film composer or a TV composer can truly ever have unless you're talking about somebody like Shane Carruth who writes, edits, directs, and scores, yeah. <laughs> you know, his, his films. Yeah. I was kind of thinking about that today, like how you're so much more in the spotlight when you're writing a song, especially if there's lyrics, versus film scoring, or instrumental music even, too. You, I don't know. As someone who does both, do you have trouble sometimes being in the spotlight as a singer-songwriter? I think there's more pressure. I think it could be harder sometimes to be responsible for everything in a song. You know, you really, you create this thing from nothing. And 
you're not accountable to anybody but yourself. But that's a double-edged sword. It depends on how much accountability you normally give, you know, yeah. you, you normally hold yourself to. And I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist, and so I can, you know, it'll take me years to finish a song sometimes. But if you're scoring something, if you're scoring a film, you don't have that luxury. So you still have to make it as good as you can. And you, you, you know, there's something liberating about being like, well, you have two weeks to do it. So do it like that. You know, you got to get it done. Yeah. What has your favorite project been to work on? Actually, I was just thinking about that. After saying that idea of like, oh, you have two weeks to get it done. There was the, the first movie that I worked on, um, first feature that I worked on was called Save the Date. It was directed by a friend of mine, Mike Mohan, who I've known for years. He he directed the very first music video for my band, the 1AM Radio, my, my own project. And six years after that video, he was making his, his feature. And in the film, two of the characters are in a band, and one of them is supposed to write the song in the movie. Mike had originally written it with the idea of it being a, a pre-existing 1AM radio song. But the biggest problem with that was that the song that he was want, he wanted to use is like a very slow, kind of sad song. And they were worried about like just at a technical level, the pacing of the film by having that song for that scene might like slow things down too much. So then he, he was like, what would you think about writing an original song for the movie? And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds great four or five days later after that first conversation, he was like, so, you know, how's the song coming? And like I said, I, I have taken years to finish a song. Um, and I wasn't planning on doing that here, but, but I was like, Oh yeah, things are good. I'm like thinking about it. I've been reading the script, uh, again and coming up with some, some possibilities. I think, I, I think I'm on the right track. And he's like, and he was like, no, Rishi, this is the first scene that we're shooting. You have to finish it soon just send me something because the actor needs to learn it and learn it well enough that he can sing it on camera. So, so I was like, okay, I, I guess I'll, and I just sat, sat down and I ended up writing the entire song that night. And that was amazing. I had never, I'd never worked that fast before. So having that kind of accountability really helped me. All the chances are that by all the accidents that talk That's a great song. Oh, thanks um, a lot. And it's very smooth flowing, I think. And maybe that's because you wrote it in a night. or <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't even know that I, if I could do it again, uh, unless somebody, you know, I've, I've written songs since then, and, and I still haven't been able to recapture working that fast or that spontaneously. Sure. One thing I liked about that song, too, um, I noticed there was like a lot of space after you sang the verses mm-hmm. and it's like kind of nice breathing room to just take in your words. Now I know. It brought me to you. Maybe because I was working so fast and partly because I knew the scene isn't, wasn't going to be super long. I wasn't really trying to bother with, structure you know there's no chorus in the song it's kind of a, it has kind of a strange structure it's like it's like an intro verse one and then 
reintro and then verse two and then a bridge and that's it there's no there's never a chorus um how much do you think about structure when you're writing songs like i think about it more after the fact after the sort of initial idea i don't really think about it at first um first i'm just trying to do whatever i can to you know squeeze the blood out of the stone (laughs) you know my brain um i i think the songs of mine that are uh I don't know. A lot of them don't don't have very good pop structure. They don't follow a lot of rules the way they should. But um, when they do, that's definitely those are definitely ones that I've like worked on for a while. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try and really you know really go for it and be like specific and tight about this and like understand why I'm choosing to make this this long. And you know, part of it is also I I feel like I'm learning more about about structure especially through Song Exploder, I, I feel like I, I'm learning about how people think about songs and, and there are lessons that I can take from that. You know, there's one that I I only recently started to think about, which was that a pre-chorus that's instrumental can be kind of detrimental to the power of a chorus. You know, if you really want like a chorus mm. to be this kind of like awesome moment, even if it's not like an anthemic kind of thing, it's it's supposed to be the hook or whatever. You have the verse and you're going along, and then if you suddenly go to like an instrumental part in the pre-chorus, it's kind of like flags. It kind of it kind of feels like a step down, and then when you go to the chorus, you've kind of lost some of the momentum. So maybe don't do that. Hmm. You know, maybe have have some words in your pre-chorus or don't have a pre-chorus. I think about that stuff, but I I definitely only think about it later. It's like clean up after the f- first ideas get vomited out. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering like after doing all these interviews, how do you think your own songwriting will change? I think it's hard. I mean, I I think it's hard because I, I already put a fair amount of pressure on myself before I even get a song out. Like I said, the hardest part for me is to start a song. And I think that's because I'll have some initial idea and then I just, I'll I'll throw it away after 10 minutes because I'm like, Oh, this is stupid. This is never going to be anything good. And in some ways I think, Song Exploder has exacerbated that because I'm picking songs, usually my favorite song by whichever artist I'm talking to, and and I'm like, oh, these are such great songs. They're so good, you know. They're like, even though the process and the stories are so different every time, and the making of them is a, is a completely unique thing, I still get hung up on the idea that they're like, for whatever reason, they're great songs. So okay, my way in could be anything, but at the end of the day, it's got to be this like fantastic song to want to hold up to the same kind of love and scrutiny that I'm giving the songs on, on the show. And that just, that's like the worst thing. It's, it's totally paralyzing. Um, Yeah. I've probably written way less than I, than I would have if I didn't do the show. I probably would be more (laughs) prolific. Not that I'm that prolific at all. I mean, I, yeah. I'm guessing most songs after song exploding them, you appreciate even more, but are there any that you like less after listening through them a ton and breaking them apart? No, definitely not. You, I pretty much only like the songs more by the time I'm done. And I think, at least what I hope the result of the show is, that even just by listening to the story, you have this investment. This is the reason why I like it was better to have the songs at the end, because then when you do hear the song at the end, you're like, Oh yeah, that part. You like recognize all the things. You 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 kind of yeah. remember the stories, and you and you end up liking it more than you might have otherwise. And so I go through the same kind of thing. I 
I'm not going to start off with a song that I don't like. I, I like all of the songs. But then by the end, I have this deeper kind of sense of attachment and fondness for them. Yeah. The reason I ask is because I sometimes have that experience when I'm learning a song to cover it, mm. where I end up, I don't know if it's because I just hate my own interpretation of it or what, but sometimes these songs that I grew up with that I thought were so magical end up being a lot simpler than I thought, at least like chords wise. Wait, and so when you when you cover them, you end up liking them more when you find out how simple they are or you, or you end up liking uh, them less? Oh, no. Well, kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I like them a little less. Uh, uh, maybe it's just because I get sick of playing them because you're trying to learn them (laughs) yeah so i intentionally if i know i really really like a song i will intentionally not try to cover it (laughs) but i don't maybe i'm just weird no i can Uh, understand that maybe i know there's definitely been there have been songs that i love and then i start paying attention to the lyrics or you know i'll read the liner notes and i'm like oh that's what this, that's what they're saying? That's not <laughs> nearly as profound as what I was hoping for, or even, you know, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I have a question here from a fan of your show. Uh, Dan Haig is wondering, which song from any point in history would you most like to explode? Uh, um... Maybe Wandering Star by Portishead off of Dummy. That would be a good one. Um, there's that song Four by Aphex Twin. That would be a good one. I'm thinking of songs from, I guess, the era in, in my life when I started to pay attention to production, when I started to realize that songs sounded a particular way. And that Portishead record, I feel like, marked the awakening of that for me. Um, I was so obsessed with how that record sounded and and i just couldn't figure it out i still don't know exactly you know i I have a better sense of of it but still like the way that they use samples and you know the drum sampling i just thought it was so cool um i played drums in high school and i was always trying to get my drums to sound more like a drum machine and less like you know somebody playing drums and when i heard that record you know, it had this sort of hip-hop drum sound, this kind of, like, sampled drum sound, but then they were songs with this girl singing. You know, it was, like, it was one of the first times that I felt like I was hearing something that, that melded what I thought of, like, as a more traditional kind of band sound with hip-hop production, and I couldn't figure out how they were doing it. And I think that was when I started down the road of, of thinking about production and getting excited about the idea that how a song sounds is just as important to the feeling that you get from it as what the notes are. Yeah. How did it go when you were first starting to do some production? What was your first entry point? The first, very first thing was a four track that I borrowed from a friend of mine. It was just a, you know, cassette four track and I had like a, an acoustic guitar pickup and I would plug that into the, four track directly so it was just like terrible sounding but it was like a acoustic guitar i was playing these really kind of quiet lullaby kind of songs and then i would overdub 
some like improvised lead guitar stuff over it. And then I, I would just sort of like scan through talk radio and like static and stuff and overdubbed that too. And that was like my, those are some of my first four track recordings. And it was like a little tape to fall asleep to that I, I gave to my sister and a couple friends. And, and I called that the 1am radio. And that was where that, that, that name came from. When did you first start getting into remixing? I think the first remix that I did was a, it was for a split 12 inch that I did with my, my friends who were in a group called the wind up bird. Their songs were really long. And I, and I don't know, I really wanted to do a really long song too. And we both were using pro tools. My friend, Joe Grimm from the wind up bird is actually who showed me a lot of, of how to use pro tools initially. I didn't know anybody who like cared about this stuff, but he was like, he really did. And he, uh, he had some mics and he lived in a house with his bandmates and he had a little space where he was recording. So I recorded some stuff with him and I would just kind of learn by watching over his shoulder. I would, I would just watch him use pro tools and occasionally ask him questions and he would, he would show me. And that was the best way for me to learn by far was to have someone, you know, patiently kind of explaining stuff as he was doing his own thing. Either, either he was working on a recording of mine or he would work on something from his own band and I would just be hanging out with him. So then when we were making this split 12 inch, I thought it would be cool to try and do a remix, you know, to try and work with each other's tracks. And I loved his remix so much. That was the first time somebody had done a remix of one of my tracks. And it was so cool. It was the, it was the coolest experience to hear somebody reinterpret um, my song. I was such a, I'm a big fan of his musically anyway. And, and it sounded like him, but it was my song. I mean, there was, those were my notes that he was working in, but then he had reshaped it. It was, it was so cool. I loved it. Do you have any advice for someone who might want to get into remixing like what's your approach i mean i guess the first i i I would say the i don't know if this counts as advice but the easiest way to do it is to do to do just that what i did which is if you have a friend who also makes music and if you make music you probably have a friend who also makes music and just say okay i've had this finished song um and you know you pick your favorite of their songs and ask their permission to just mess around with it and then try and make something as cool as possible out of their work and see how it goes. Because then, you know, there's not as much pressure and you can you can have some dialogue with them. You can talk about it. And that's what I would do. I mean, that's what I did. Yeah, I suppose, because then you avoid the discouragement maybe of, like, if you pick a really popular song and everyone's like, well, I'd just rather listen to the original. Yeah. Also, if you're trying to do a popular song, the chances of you being able to get this access to the stems are going to be pretty rare. Unless somebody has like, unless they're doing a remix contest, you know, it's a lot easier to just say to your friend, hey, I love this song of yours. Send me your original session, you know, send me all the, all the tracks for it and let me mess around with it. Yeah. How do you go about getting stems for stuff you remix? Just like that. (laughs) I'll just say, hey, can I do a remix of this song? And, you know, either they say yes or no. <laughs> okay. Nice. Even Radiohead? 
The Radiohead one was part of a re- remix contest. They did oh, a nice. um, thing for Reckoner where they they put out the stems for that track and you know kind of let anybody download it and then you uploaded your track and then people voted on it. That was the idea. They had a website where all of the tracks were uploaded and you could listen to any of the remixes and you could you know vote them up. Um, you couldn't vote stuff down, but whatever got the most votes got something or I don't know. But there are a couple of people artists who I am a big fan of now and who are like pretty established that that was my first exposure to their work was because they had a remix and it had like made its way up the ladder. That's cool. I totally missed that. It was yeah. a while ago. It was, yeah, like eight or nine years ago, whenever, whenever in rainbows came out. Yeah. I do love that song. Reckoner. Oh, it's so good. It's really cool how they produced it too. I'm sure you've, listen to this too but like the drum tracks in your left ear and right ear are totally different yeah it's like a shaker faster beat in the left ear and then like this cute like bigger rock drum sound and it even sounds like it's in a different space yes yeah Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was a little bit tricky working on that remix. I mean, obviously they weren't going to go through the trouble of giving you some crazy extensive stem library. I think they only had like four things. It was like here are the vocals, here's the drums and percussion, and then like here's everything else maybe, or maybe it was like here's hmm. guitars and bass, and here's. It was very limited in terms of the number of stems. Um, okay, but that was also part of. It was kind of what opened the door to being like, okay, well, they don't have a lot. I'm just going to record a ton of stuff for my own remix because I don't have enough material to work with. So I'm going to, I tend to do that anyway with, with remixes. I don't usually stick to the materials that, that I'm, you know, and I think the best, best remixes are that way. They'll use the original song as a starting off point, but then they'll record and add things and change it, not just by shaping the pre-existing sounds, but by like really pulling from their own palette. interrupt Radiohead, but it's time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. Since you chose to listen to this podcast interview about a podcaster, I'm just going to guess that you've thought about podcasting yourself at one time or another. Well, what do you know? Lynda has an on-demand course that gives you all the info you need to start your own podcast, from recording to mixing to publishing. This course also gets into some theory behind podcasting, so let's take a listen to the instructor's thoughts on teasing your audience. Television people do this really well. It's called the tease. You hear it all during your local newscast. Coming up in weather, Joe's going to tell us whether or not you need a rain hat tomorrow. That's called a tease. And you can use a tease in podcasting to make sure that your audience visits you again and again and again. So in your first show, you might want to tease what's going to happen in the second show. Something like, In this week's show, we're going to talk to you all about how to use a digital camera. But next week, I'm going to show you how to make prints from your digital camera. Clearly, I should start teasing you all a little more. 
Anyways, this course, called Podcasting with GarageBand 3, is just one niche of the over 3,000 courses you get access to through Lynda. Check it out and get a free 10-day trial by going to lynda.com slash quest, L-Y-N-D-A. Okay, let's get back to my talk with Rishikesh. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about a few 1AM radio tracks. Sure. One I really liked is Constance, especially the guitar solo and that sound. It's really nice. What I thought was interesting about that song, too, going back to talking about the structure, it seems like you have a chorus at the beginning, then a verse, if I remember right. I, there's like, like the, a there's like a hook first that that's kind of like the refrain. And then there's the chorus. I climb up on the roof while you're still sleeping in our little bed. To let out all the secrets I've left steeping in my weary and then there's a verse. Down below it's just the dogs and the ghosts Scattering into the darkness when you get too close Do you know if you do that in any of your other songs? Or, cause um, I'm trying to think of, like, I don't hear that too much in pop songs, I don't think. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've done it any other times. For that song, it really, it was more a matter of needing to like establish like the chorus is kind of what established the premise of the song and you know there there could be this thing where you kind of lay the you lay the scene in a verse and then the chorus is really like some kind of thesis or some kind of like like that's where you make your point and and for that song that it is where i guess i was making my point but but you kind of needed that for context for the rest of the verse or I thought that's what I thought maybe you could have done it another way but that was a song that was not easy to make why is that I don't know it just uh, it just well one it's really high for me it's a hard key for me to sing in but there was something about the guitar part I think the guitar part I had to keep it in that key because I couldn't play like there was no good way for the for the guitar part to sound if it was in another another key it had to be like it had to have this the f on the bottom um you know which Mm -hmm. is like the lowest fret on the guitar in standard tuning um that f chord was f major seventh chord was important and then you know and then it slides up so i was like well that's the key that's you know there's the tonic and and so singing it was was really hard. It took a long time to get the take right, and I think I still probably am not one hundred percent confident in, in how it turned out. Um, the singing on it, and I think just the lyrics, and I do think the structure was hard. Like it was just a weird weird song to make. Um, it does, didn't feel super intuitive, but I I, I, I do like it. I had like the lyrics of that one. I'm I'm proud of how that one turned out in terms of the actual songwriting. Yeah. The part that I especially like is when you're talking about biking 
down the road and then you get to the point where you usually just turn back and then it kind of leaves it hanging like did you go on or are you also turning back again yeah <laughs> and then it's the guitar solo and you get to think about it I, <laughs> <laughs> I speed the empty boulevard at night on the cool metal frame of a mountain pipe I line the wheels up with the long yellow stripe And close my eyes for a second just to feel what it's like I've seen the edge of where this road has led But I've always turned around to head home instead Are there any of your own songs that give you the chills when you listen back? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I think when I listen to my own music, there's a self-consciousness that's always there that would prevent anything from like that, you know, from, from ever being a possibility. I just am not, I'm not outside of it enough to have such a like honest and visceral reaction as that. With the song, when I think about the songs that, that do give me chills, you know, they're really, they're like taking me by surprise or they're, they're, they're taking me someplace. And, and I, I would never even be so arrogant as to think that, that I could do that, you know, with, with one of my songs my, to myself. Sure. What kind of songs do give you the chills? There's plenty of instrumental music that does, uh, like Steve Reich, there, there, you know, um, Proverb by Steve Reich, that's definitely one of them. There's a song called Hana by Asa Chang and Jun Ray. It's just really crazy hypnotic song that just has this like looping string part and it's a, one of the most insane songs I've ever heard and it's it's downright scary at times. Like like I actually like like a horror movie but kind of a little bit scary or maybe eerie, but that song gives me chills. It's so good. But a lot of a lot of times you know, a lyric will do that to me a, like a really powerful lyric will give me chills or or just you know give, like give me goosebumps like Sufjan Stevens has done that a couple times to me between his voice and what he's saying it'll just be too much like it's just it's like yeah. um he has a song from Michigan called Romulus there's a couple times where he, he says I was ashamed and it's not a concept that gets talked about in music a lot it's not something that that people tend to approach too much is shame so that alone is like it's kind of like whew, all right <laughs> and then his and then the but the song is so beautiful and his voice just sounds like it's like it's gonna fall apart yeah have you gotten to interview him no i've asked and i was yeah told no uh-huh. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he just, he does a lot, but he is definitely somebody on my uh, wish list, especially because one of the things in some ways that played into the background of doing Song Exploder is on another record of his, the uh, Illinois record, there's a song called They Are Night Zombies, <laughs> and the song is great, and the arrangement is beautiful. There's this really beautiful string part in the song, and there's a track on the record after the thing where the, the, the title is 
Let's hear that string part again, because I don't think they heard it all the way out in Bushnell. And then it's just the strings from that song. He replays it. So he kind of does this like proto song exploder right there where he just like plays just that part. And so that was kind of one of the reasons why I thought he would be, he would be great. And his arrangements are so um, interesting. Yeah. Any upcoming guests that you can reveal? I think the next one is RJD2, a song that he did with Kenna on guest vocals. I I think that is, uh, I just talked to Kenna today. And so I'm going to try and put that together for the next episode. Cool. And then after that, I think we'll be Toro y Moi. That was an episode I recorded in um, San Francisco at the Noise Pop Festival. And his record comes out mid-April. So I'm trying to put that episode out the same week. Another fan of yours, Alex Samuel, uh, he wanted me to ask you about South by Southwest and how that went. Um, It was cool. Uh, Will Butler was my guest, and he was great. He was eloquent and funny, um, sort of everything that you want out of a guest and dynamic and engaging. Uh, It's a little tricky for me doing the live ones. I really like it. Um, I mean, I like being able to meet people and, and talk to people, but I also get freaked out by them a little bit because when I'm doing a regular interview, I can re-ask questions over and over again until I feel like I get a great response. You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not belligerent about it or I try not to be, but, but I can try and find a way to rephrase it. If I'm like, Oh, I know they, there's a good story in there and they kind of were skirting around it and I want to get into it. I can kind of, I can kind of find my way there and I can take a long time and I'll talk to somebody for an hour, an hour and a half and not really worry about the time. But when you're doing it live, there suddenly there's this like performance aspect to it too, where you want to get the best recording you can for the episode that I'm going to make later on. But at the same time, you're on stage in front of people who have come to see you and you want it to be entertaining and pithy and not boring. And I always um, get a little worried about that. I, I get a little stressed out about that part. So um, again, it is this one was easier because Will was funny. And, and when the guest is funny, it always puts me at ease a little bit because it, a fascinating episode might come out of somebody speaking, you know, really in a dry way about something technical or, so, or something, you know, they don't have to be funny for it to be a great episode, but for it to be a great live show, that definitely helps. And there, you know, there's a reason why I cut my side of the interviews out, partly for the concept of the show, but also it frees me from having to be really on and, and, you know, I don't have to worry as much about being articulate, but when you're on stage, you got to make sure that you don't sound like a dummy. Do you have any plans to keep yourself in episodes or pretty much keep yourself out of them? I don't have any plans to be in the episodes more. There've been a couple times in, in a few episodes where I've had to throw my voice in um, because there's a story or an answer that I've been given that's really good, but it wasn't phrased in a way necessarily that is clear what they're talking about. And, and so for the sake of some context, I need to actually put my voice in there. And I'll still do that if, if ever it, it comes to it. But I'm, I think it's better when I'm not in there. Any interviewing tips after doing this? Because you just kind of started interviewing last year. Yeah, the first episode, the Postal Service episode, was the first time I'd really interviewed anybody. How did that go? 
I mean, that was fine because it was my friend. Uh, Jimmy and I had been on tour together and he was nice enough to let me test the idea out with him. You know, interviewing your friend is always easier than interviewing a stranger. Yeah. That was like my first 20 episodes probably. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my first my first three were with people who I hung out with a lot. You know, I mean, the first three that I did, not the first three that came out, but those were all people who I had played shows with and knew their music intimately. So I kind of knew what I wanted to ask about. So they were good test subjects. Was it still a little bit weird interviewing your friends at first? No, I don't think so. It was it was okay. You know, the, the nice thing about Song Exploder is it doesn't, it's not really an interview in some ways because I'm just prompting them to tell tell the stories that they already know, the experiences they already know. I'm not probing for these things about their, their personal life. A lot of it is just like, you know, listening to the song and then we'll listen to the, especially at first, you just listen to the stem and I'm like, what is that? It turns out that that's a, it's just an easy question to ask and it can lead to great things. If you just ask a musician, what is that sound? How did you make that is really all you need to say. And, uh, and so I can say that with my friends. I mean, that's how the whole thing started. I would go over to my friends' houses and we'd be playing each other tracks and I'd hear something that they made and I'd be like, that's awesome. What is that? And they'd be like, Oh, I made it this way. It's so cool. Yeah. Are there things people have, said or pointed out that keep coming back to you as i guess i've talked about a little bit i can tend to belabor the creation of something and one thing that i keep coming back to you know it's not in every episode but it's come up a bunch is sort of trusting your instincts and not overworking something and i'm trying to follow that idea more myself it's it's a little bit counterintuitive because i'm like oh if i just spend 40 more hours on this one sound then it'll be closer to perfect you know then it'll be actually it'll be good enough to put out into the world and i end up doing that with with song exploder episodes too the nice thing about song exploder episodes is that they have to come out you know like i've i've sort of committed to putting them out at with a certain level of frequency anyway so so that's the thing that that's been maybe the biggest lesson is um, hearing people over and over again talking about abandoning this idea of of perfection yeah well kind of along those lines one of your twitter fans noop faka uh was asking does the 1am radio have new music coming out soon oh i wish i don't i know there's no i mean not anytime soon sure <laughs> Hypothetically, uh, what kind of stuff would you be inspired to write? My sister just had a baby, and when she was born, I went out, went out there, and because I was on West Coast time, and partly just because I'm a, a night owl anyway, I would take the baby while my sister and her husband tried to get a few hours of sleep, and that was pretty awesome. Um, and I was thinking that the last 1AM radio record had a lot more production and was a little more upbeat or whatever my version of upbeat is i was thinking that if i was going to make the next record um it would be kind of fun to do something that was more like lullabies i think just just by 
staying up really late holding this baby, you know, in this, in this silent house. And I would, you know, hum little things here and there. I think that that's kind of where my, my mind's at right now. Cool. Yeah. That'd be great to hear. (laughs) I kind of had a similar idea actually about trying to make an album that would be designed for falling asleep to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but still interesting enough. Yeah. I don't know how you'd approach that, but yeah, that's, I mean, you plug an acoustic guitar directly into a four track and then add some, <laughs> some static AM radio. That was my, that was what that idea was, was songs to fall asleep to for sure. Yeah. Are those songs available uh, anywhere? The original? I wonder <laughs> if, if anybody still has that tape. Um, there might be a copy of it somewhere in the world. It's definitely not publicly available. I'd probably be mortified to hear it again now. <laughs> But maybe my sister has it. Maybe maybe there's someone there's a a tape floating out there. But but I don't have it. Well, that'd be a cool song exploder ex- episode, a retrospective of your stuff. <laughs> but I I remember seeing that you have you do have a song exploder episode on one of your your own tracks for people who. Our subscribers for pe- for people who are yeah it was originally when Song Exploder was part of Maximum Fun they offer bonus episodes to people who are members who donate and become become members of Maximum Fun and I didn't know what to do I mean it was taking it sort of took everything I got to just scrape together one episode and to come up with an extra bonus episode I was like I don't know who who to talk to so I thought well if you like the show enough to want to give money to it, then maybe you would allow me to be indulgent enough to like talk about one of my own songs. Um, But I did say like when now when people like donate to song exploder directly, they can get that episode if they want. I mean, really anybody, if at this point, if anybody wants that episode, they can have it. I just don't feel comfortable putting it out there as like representative of, of the show. Sure. Well, before we get going here, uh, I have a tradition on this show of the previous guest asking the current guest a question, not knowing who you are, Mm. um, but my last guest um, is a brain scientist slash producer, Roger Dumas, and he was asking, what is the future of music listening? I think we're sort of in the future of music listening already, but in just a really terrible version of it. Like, it's executed so badly. The ideal, which I hope the long arc towards music justice is is curving this way, but um, I think the ideal is that listeners get everything they want and artists get everything that they want, or at least that they need. So you you can listen to anything on demand, from anywhere. You know, if you're in your car, you hit your voice command and say, play this song. It doesn't matter what you have downloaded or anything, like the computer in your car talks to some satellites in space and it plays the song that you're looking for and it sounds great. The, the audio quality is fantastic and you get it really fast. There's no like weird buffering. And through some other, some mechanism, the person who made it gets compensated fairly for their work. That's what I 
hope the future of, of music listening is, right? Everybody can listen to anything they want, and the people who make it are compensated fairly for their work. Yeah. I feel like the patronage system and Kickstarter style is kind of on the right track that people want to donate to artists they appreciate the most. But did you have any other thoughts on how that could work? I don't know if this is possible, but I think people need need to just stop thinking about music as a disposable commodity. And maybe just by the virtue of, of how technology works, that'll never happen. I'm sure if people could download clothes for free, they would, but mm. they can't. And so they go into a, you know, they pay money for them. So I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to, to go backwards in that way and, and have people rethink about music as an art that's worth paying for. Yeah. Um, I think, I think like if something like Spotify or audio, if the, or beats, I, I think that definitely has to start by them charging more money for the, for the service. I know that's going to be a hugely unpopular thing to suggest, but they've kind of touted the service as being f- successful based on volume. And that might be true. If everybody in the world had access to something like Spotify, the way that so many people have access to uh, internet provider, but everybody pays for that internet access. If it was somehow closer to that, like a utility that everybody had to kind of buy into or like an affordable care act for consuming stuff, maybe then there would be enough people paying into the system that the people who are creators could actually make a living doing that. Yeah. But you might be right. It might might require more of a patronage-style model. That might be how it is. Yeah. I mean, that model requires people to be more, even more active, like marketing themselves it seems like i mean i guess either way they have to market themselves but it's like yeah you're taking up a lot of your creative time doing that too so yeah it's true well do you have a question for our next guest my question is if you i think that there's an aspect of how we interact with uh the crew production of music nowadays that's so tied to timelines that's tied to like seeing a waveform on a screen if you could produce music in a context that doesn't have that kind of linear visual representation would you Mm. that's a good question i think i would i think it would change i would love to at least try it you know it'd be a, a fun way to kind of open up new neural pathways in your music brain if you had to have to do it where you weren't seeing that waveform and being like okay now i'm going to cut this and paste this and loop you know yeah do you have any thoughts on what that would be like (laughs) well so i used to record before i recorded on the computer i had a digital eight track and that was the first recording device that i had and i think that I worked differently. You know, I didn't see anything there. I just would hit record and I was definitely still thinking linearly. But, um, you know, when I, I felt like I graduated when I went to Pro Tools and I could see stuff and I was like, oh, it's so much easier and things are, you know, you can do so much more and you can work so much more quickly. But now I, I wonder if I were to go back to that or, or if you were to record on an MPC or some kind of recorder that didn't have, that didn't have a screen 
I think that might be a way to go back to it. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to plug here? Um, Song Exploder is um, online at songexploder.net or it's on iTunes or anywhere else anybody might be listening to this podcast. I'm going to be in Oakland for the Megapolis Festival on uh, June 6th and 7th in Oakland. It's an experimental audio and music festival uh, that's being put on by um, Sam Greenspan from 99% Invisible and some other cool folks. And uh, Roman Mars is speaking, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm going to be doing a Song Exploder live with Motmos. So I'm excited for that. Um, cool. And, yeah, if you want to check out my music, it's called The 1AM Radio. Um, I have, you can find it at the1amradio.com. I have a band camp, and a bunch of the stuff is up on iTunes as well. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Risha K. Sherway. That clip of Song Exploder you heard at the beginning was from episode 20 with Dave Hill from the band Valley Lodge. You may have stumbled across the Composer Quest forum before. I haven't been pushing it too hard, but I now think I have a fun idea of how we could use it. I'm going to pose a question of the week based on something that came up in the show. And I want to hear your answers to this question. So our first question of the week is, what songs give you musical chills? And if you write music, do any of your own songs do it for you? Post your thoughts at forum.composerquest.com. I was listening to the song Rishikesh mentioned, Hana, by Asa Chang and Junray, and that was like a musical chill factory towards the end. See if that one works for you. I have a link to it in the show notes at composerquest.com slash songexploder. Now, I couldn't end this episode about Song Exploder without exploding one of my own productions. Time for another edition of... Since we're talking about musical chills, I thought I'd dig into a song of mine that actually does give me the chills, pretty consistently each time I listen. I'm not bringing this up to brag about it, I just want to get a little scientific and figure out if there's some sort of secret formula in the production that might be causing the reaction. Whatever it is, I definitely stumbled across it by accident. So, let's see where this goes. The song in question is one that I've played here on the show before, called Nets of Silver and Gold. I made it with my friend Nick Simon in our band Cage Tones, and the inspiration for this song came from me messing around with a granular synthesis effect in Ableton Live. Granular synthesis is when you take a super short sample of a recording and play it back hundreds of times until it's like a smooth sand dune where you can't see any of the individual grains of sand anymore. So I started by harvesting tiny grains from the beginning of this song. Then I used the grain freeze effect to make peaceful frozen chords out of it. I just went with my gut on when the chords should change, but it's fairly random. I then added an instrument that reminds me of Animal Collective a little bit, arpeggios with a delay that make each note doubled.
After I set up these bass tracks, Nick improvised a bunch of percussion lines on mallets, bells, and a gong. created a middle section that cuts out all the percussion and I sang over just the initial chords. Nick wrote these lyrics and maybe that's in part why I get the chills. There's not as much of the self-consciousness that Rishikesh Herway was talking about. My sleepless eyes turn toward the road I leave for you spot is right when I get the chills, right as the gong hits and all the percussion fades back in. So what exactly is giving me the chills? Let's see what science has to say about it. Here are some theories on what gives people chills in music. First, the most powerful chills can occur when you know what's coming next. Yeah, I did listen to the song over and over again while mixing, so maybe I'm the only one who gets this reaction. Second theory, It's kind of a polar opposite one here. It's that chills can come from something unexpected happening, like a new instrument entering or the dynamics changing drastically. The gong hit I was talking about is a major change in texture. The vocals exit and over a dozen instruments take their place. So even though I know this change is coming, maybe it's still a little bit of a surprise hearing the new textures. Third theory, sad music can be more likely to trigger chills because it may actually trigger an ancient fear response and cause your hair to stand up on end. Neuroscientist Jack Panksup thinks that nostalgic or wistful ballads can unlock the kind of distress our ancestors felt when separated from their family. Maybe it's no coincidence that this song is about being away from home and longing to come back to a loved one. Fourth theory. I kind of wonder if part of the chills I experience are coming from an effect called ASMR or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. If you Google ASMR, you'll find a bunch of semi-creepy videos of people whispering in your ear, or eating pop rocks, or crinkling paper. The idea is that there are certain frequencies and sounds that send tingles down your spine. Even Bob Ross painting Happy Little Trees has been listed as a trigger sound. If anything is causing this reaction to my song, I'd guess it's the shaker tracks, There's not much reverb on them, and they're panned hard left and right, so the result is that they sound like they're right next to your ears, just like the whispering sounds or paper crinkling sounds in ASMR videos. I'm going to keep investigating musical chills because it seems like a major key to making powerful emotional music. I think any producer or composer who figures out exactly how to trigger chills could start cranking out hit after hit. So anyways, now I'll play you the full version of Nets of Silver and Gold. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this production lesson, check out all my other ones in my mini production lesson podcast at composerquest.com cmpl.
I live for you to know. 